Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity to gather our hearts together around thy word. To be able to call you Father. What an amazing privilege that is. When we think about that, that word, that intimate word, Father. The one whose name was unpronounceable, the one who declared himself, I am that I am, from the burning bush to thy servant Moses, now wants us to call him Father. What a blessing, Heavenly Father, this is, and help us never to take it for granted. As we turn, perhaps, to our earthly fathers when we have difficulties and trouble, we want to also turn to thee to find comfort from thee, to find instruction from thee, to receive our calling also from thee, Heavenly Father. We also want to remember now those that are going through difficulties, especially those that have received uh, troubling medical diagnoses. We're mindful of our sister Olivia and Harrow and our brother Peter Rockovich Jr. and the Richmond Hill Church that are struggling with cancer. Heavenly Father, thou hast made man. He is the work of thy hands, and if it is in thy will, for our dear ones that they would experience a miraculous recovery, we will glorify thee for that. But even, Heavenly Father, if thy purpose is different than ours, if there is something that we do not see, we depend on thy Father heart and we know that thou dost love thy children. And so we would place them with hands of prayer into thy loving arms for, for safekeeping, for protection, for provision, for everything that they may need. Be with them and help them. There are those also among us that have chronic conditions, and we would pray for them now as well. Those that have lost uh, loved ones, even very recently, perhaps in unexpected ways. Heavenly Father, let thy spirit be present, reminding those who have faith in thee of the promise of the, of the wonderful life to come and how the separation is only brief moment. Be with us now, Heavenly Father, as we look into thy word together and teach us from the same, that we may order our lives according to its teachings, and that in doing so, we would, we would experience relationship with thee in a, in a real and a, a living way. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a passage of scripture on my heart that I'd like to read with the Lord's help. It's found in Second or in First Thessalonians, starting with the first chapter. Paul's first letter to the believers at Thessalonica, beginning with verse one of the first chapter. I'd like to read into the second as well. Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace. 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much intention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. I read until the end of verse 9 of the second chapter. There were a few things from this passage of scripture that stood out, and perhaps a little bit of context is in order as well. The church in Thessalonica was composed of a, a mixture of believers. Uh, Thessalonica was an important city. Uh, I think it, the, the road it was on was called the Via Ignatia, which was an important trade route from Rome across to Thessalonica and then from there into the, uh, the Aegean Sea and the cities that surrounded that area. So it was a very wealthy city, one of the wealthiest in the empire. And there was a sizable Jewish population there as well as was also in Philippi. Um, and 
the Apostle Paul, in his uh, missionary journeys, went through a number of these cities. And he alludes to some of his previous experiences in that area, as we read together about his time in Philippi. He sent back Timothy to go visit the Thessalonian believers and to report back to him. And Timothy came back and he had a glowing report of this church in Thessalonica that was composed of some Jewish believers, but also some Greek believers that had uh, left behind paganism and the, and the idolatry that was so prevalent in the ancient world and discovered this God that could not be seen. Um, many of them were uh, converts to Judaism, but then when Paul came and explained the mystery of Messiah, of Christ, God coming in the flesh, they embraced this gospel, and it changed them. It changed them dramatically. And their witness was so powerful that it spread throughout that entire region. And so when Timothy returned to Paul and, and gave a good report, Paul was very much encouraged. And so he wrote this letter then in response to that uh, report that he received from Timothy. This church it says, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no um, words without consequence in the Word of God. It, these things have been written here not just to fill space on a page or to make, make up a certain amount of space in a newspaper column. They're, they're here for a reason, and they tell us things that we will take the time to think about them we will discover truths of Scripture that are directly applicable to our lives. He says, this church, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, you can read it for yourself, talks about how he wants those disciples to be in him even as he is in the Father. That they would enjoy this, this oneness of communion that he says that he had before the world was. The way that we know the unknowable God is through his son, Jesus Christ. He told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ is God made understandable to us. God was a mystery in the Old Testament. He revealed himself to Moses in the mount and he gave his name as a, as a series of contradictions. The one who will that by, by no means clear the guilty, but shows grace and mercy on thousands. How can this be? What kind of God can be absolutely just and yet still be so merciful? Doesn't mercy go against justice? You're either just or you're merciful. We see it in Jesus Christ. We understand it in Jesus Christ. We see how Jesus could satisfy both the justice and the mercy of God when he died in our place. And that was that we may be one with him. That was always his intent. 
to heal the breach that had been made by sin back in the garden by our first parents. If you wish to be in the Father, you must be in Christ. That is the way. Paul makes a little note here, and he says this in other places. And I have to confess, I, I sometimes wince a little bit when I read these things, but he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. How often do our prayers end with us and our family? Often, I assume, if you're like me. Sometimes I forget about this whole body of Christ. But Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all. It must have been a, quite an experience to witness this, this great warrior of the Lord on his knees, perhaps beside his bed, pouring out his heart to the Lord. Perhaps for hours, I don't know. But he says, always for you all. I have done this before, and I'm convicted I probably should do it more often. But I had an opportunity a little bit before I was married to travel to Jamaica to be part of a work team down there, working up in the highlands on a, a campus of a village for people that were deaf. And we had, it was organized by our sister church. Uh, they do an excellent job organizing things. And they had us, uh, every morning we met up and they broke us up into teams to work on the different projects. Someone who had the experience to uh, do that particular job or task, whatever it was. And the people that were suited to that task and you were, you were divvied up and uh, you went off uh, to do your work until lunchtime. There was one position though in every job site and they called it the prayer chair. And there was a, it wasn't necessarily a chair, sometimes it was. It was a place away from the group where one person from each work crew was assigned to go pray. And we were given a list of all of the people on our, our work team, the whole team. It was about maybe 40 of us or so. And we were to pray for each person on that list and just work our way down that list. And, you know, young people, we're all energetic and we're having a good time and we're laughing and we're, 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 we're working together. But it was a sobering reminder to look over to the corner to see where one of our group was sitting and just praying for this whole experience. So often our prayers begin and end with ourselves and our immediate circle. It's easy to kind of quarantine with our prayers as well. But God's plan is so much bigger than that. It includes the whole church. And not just our church, not even just the churches in our denomination, but wherever believers are gathered together around the word of God in truth, His Spirit is there. And we ought to pray for them as well. Perhaps we need to do this more often as well. Take down the church phone list and begin at the top and start praying through that list. Remembering the, the different things that people might be suffering or the difficulties or those that are still yet unconverted that though having heard the truth so many times are still 
outside of the fold of Jesus Christ. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. You can only enter by him. There is no other way. You won't figure it out through your own smarts. There isn't some plan B that God came up with. If you will know the Father, you must know the Son. This church in Thessalonica was not just a bunch of uh, theologians that sat around discussing the Word of God. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. That's something I think we don't often take time to consider. You know, we've become a little bit more used to worshiping online through teams or other software platforms that allow us to call in. And we can choose when we turn on and when we turn off our camera. When we don't want people to see us, we just click that button and the screen goes black. You can't do that with God. All of these, these works, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope, it's in the sight of God. Now, there's times where we wish that he was looking, maybe on a day like today. Here I am, Lord, I'm preaching the gospel from this pulpit. I hope you're taking notice. But at other times, do we think that perhaps the camera's off? Nobody's watching. And worse yet than our actions is our heart. Someone once said, an old preacher once said, if you could develop a camera that would take a picture of someone's heart, I don't think you'd sit for more than one sitting and you'd never take that picture and show it to somebody else. Why? Because there's things sometimes in our heart that we're not very proud of, isn't there? there. Thoughts, motives, perhaps. We can look maybe good from the outside, but the heart, what's in the heart? That's to be the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. It must be clean. There's no excuse for that. And there's no hiding from the eyes of the one who sees everything. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Certain branches of the church have made a big deal about this word, election. Some have even gone so far as to say that it's a license to sin. That once God has selected you as his chosen, you cannot forfeit your salvation under any circumstances. And therefore, righteous living and holiness and a clean heart, what do they matter? That's the logical conclusion.
Does that sound like a license to sin? A warning like that? May it never be. The elect of God, at least in my mind, in a simplistic way, you know, it's, it's like a train. God has said that there is a train going from one place to another. It will arrive. It leaves at a certain time. It arrives at a certain time. If you are on that train, you will arrive at that set time, at that set location. But it doesn't matter if you've got on the train, or even if you have a ticket to be on the train, if you're not on the train. If somewhere between those two points you decide to jump off, what good does the election of God do to you? Nothing. This is why the warning's there. This is why sanctification and good works are so important. I just finished reading again a short booklet that was published back in the early 90s um, by the publishing company in Syracuse, New York. It's called The Nazarenes of Yugoslavia. And you can read in there the history of some of our spiritual forefathers and what they went through, the persecution that they had to endure. And there was a touching story in there. I get older and I get sentimental part of it maybe because I've got children of my own. But there was a, there was a young brother, a young father who had seven children of his own at home who had been called up for military service, knowing what that would mean. He refused, as the Bible says, to swear an oath, as Jesus taught. He refused to take up weapons in warfare, as Jesus also taught. And for that reason, he was put with the other believers in prison. And he suffered. His health, because of the damp conditions, he, the, the man who was writing the letter said he was a he was a good-looking, a handsome, and a, and a strong man when he went into prison. But because of his time there, his health became broken down. And there was a letter from his, his wife at home saying, Listen, just swear the oath. Take the gun. Come home to us. Your health won't allow it. And he wrote back. He said, It's not good enough to have a good beginning and a good middle. You must also have a good end. The end is the most important. The beginning and the middle are of no use if the end is not good. Make your calling and your election sure. Be careful. It's reminded me too. When I think I want to cut a corner, or when I think that this would not be that important, you don't realize what's important until it comes down to the moment of testing. That's just the nature of the test. This is why the exhortations are here. This is why the Apostle Paul praises the believers of Thessalonica for their testimony and for their faithfulness, because it's important. It matters. It's not good enough to be faithful once. You must continue in faithfulness. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, 
but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. This verse here is the one that really caught my attention. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, of a sentence of warning. The gospel is the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. But it's possible for that gospel to be received in word only. Think about that for a moment and stop. Like I did as a young person, I could acknowledge a mental assent to the gospel I could understand it. I could understand the plan of salvation. But it was all in word only. It never got farther than my head. The power was not there. And the gospel where it comes in word only makes idolaters of men and women. becomes a gospel other than what Christ intended. It can very easily become a social gospel where it's about improving the lives of people here and now. Christ ministered to the here and now, but it never ended there. And where people only wanted it to end there, he, he, uh, he reprimanded them. He fed the 5,000. And when they came around the lake and found him again, he said, you only came because of your bellies. You don't realize what the true bread is. The gospel where it comes in word only can be dangerous. Because it can give people a false sense of security. Claiming some kind of a belief but no power. This is the thing that I learned from our spiritual forefathers. I don't necessarily study their theology because they didn't write much about theology. Their theology was the word of God and our hymnal. There you can read about their theology. But their life, their actions, They had power that made people scratch their heads. They could not understand why people would be willing to suffer for this. One of the things that the government there did was you were eligible for military service from the age of 20 to the age of 50. You could be called up first for uh, um, the draft, as it were, as a young man, but then you could be called up later on as well up till your 50th year to serve in military drills. And again, you would be given the gun and so on. There was a brother who received his summons three days shy of his 50th birthday. All he had to do was avoid the authorities for three days. 
with his brothers. He went to prison for it. Think of that. How easy it would be to rationalize that. I'm ashamed to say that I probably would have hit for three days. That would have been the easier option. But the statement that was made, the power that came, it's interesting to see what, <clears throat> what the Apostle Paul says here. As a young boy, I always wondered why our elder brother Mike Bowman used to cry at the pulpit, and now that I'm up here, I see. <clears throat> These things touch you deeply when you think about your family, when you think about your church. He says here, <clears throat> this power that he's talking about, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul and Silvanus, Timothy, those that had been there with them, it was their lives that was the testimony of the gospel. That was the other half of the gospel. There was nothing wrong with the words. It didn't come in word only. Right? The word was not the problem. But to the word must be added the works. No one will hear your message of the gospel for very long if there's not works following it. James does an excellent job giving a, a blistering critique of those that would claim Faith without works. It's the same for us. If the gospel is to have any power at all, it must be followed by works. And it must be followed by works in the lives of those who proclaim it. This is why I have such a hard time with those who lead other churches and are caught in scandal, financial or, or otherwise. Think you're, you're playing with fire. You must have absolutely no belief in what you are preaching. If this can happen. The Holy Ghost will give power to those who proclaim his gospel for those that are yielded to him. How can he not? He dwells inside you. history, and that was for another time. 
that's the case, why all this writing? Why does he talk about this power? Why does he talk about the Holy Ghost? Yes, the, the, the downcoming of the Spirit of God happened at Pentecost, but it was something to be perpetuated now, to be continued. Much like because the early believers were baptized, uh, we can't say now that, well, I don't need to be baptized because they were baptized for me. We don't think that the Apostle Paul's breakfast back in AD 51 or so, whenever he wrote this, is enough to nourish me. This needs to be experienced for ourselves. This is the thing that lends credence, that lends testimony to our words. This is the power that other people will speak about. The gospel without the power won't cause much notice. But where the gospel comes with power, people sit up and notice. You've probably heard me talk about that prison in the US, incredibly bad prison, many inmates there on, on death row and serving uh, some even multiple life sentences. And there was a warden that was given the job of running that prison and he said, I'll do it on one condition. He said, well, what's that condition? He said, I do it my way. So well, what's your way? He says, we're gonna have scripture on all the walls of the prison, painted up. Everyone needs to attend chapel once a day. No exceptions. I said, okay. Got one of the highest levels of, of prisoner violence, prisoner on prisoner violence uh, in the entire US penal system. Don't have much to lose here, sure. Have it your way. He did. I saw a video of a preacher speaking to a bunch of these men. What a transformation. Men that were serving time because of murder and other horrible offenses, now studying around the Word of God, asking difficult questions of the, of the pastor that was there. A love for Scripture, a love for one another, sitting shoulder to shoulder with inmates that they may have been fighting with and perhaps even trying to kill under other circumstances before. Even the authorities didn't know what to make of it. But that's what happens when the gospel comes with power, when lives change. I'll give you one last example. There was a man I just read about in Iran on death row. Even the other death row inmates couldn't get along with this guy. He was known to be incredibly difficult. His brother, he knew he was to be executed, this, this young man. So his, the family got together and said, well, there's, someone should go because he's still family. Someone should go at least to see one more time and attend the execution. And they thought the best one suited to that was this other brother of his. So he went to go meet him in the prison. He knew what he was like before. He knew what he had done to get in there. And he knew what was going to happen to him. But he was not prepared for the shock of meeting him in his last day or two before his execution. 
He said he was totally transformed. A man at peace. With love. And joy in his heart even. Couldn't understand. He said, let me tell you what I found here. A pastor came and talked to me. About a man who loves me in spite of everything I've done. He showed me that he was willing to come to die in my place that I could be with him. He said, I'm not afraid of death anymore. He went willingly. But that other brother that had come to see him, he was troubled by what had happened. He went to see if he could find this pastor that had talked to his brother that had spoken to him. It was interesting, the story went on. He didn't actually find that pastor. But he found others who knew that pastor. I think the pastor was probably imprisoned and maybe even killed for his own faith. But he had told that story about that young man that he had met on death row and shared the gospel with. And so he found out a little bit more about what had happened. Because the guard cut the visit short with his brother before his execution. He found out a little bit more about that power that had changed his brother from a rebellious, angry young man into a calm, peaceful, joyful Christian. And as a result, him and his family also found faith. Why is the gospel spreading in repressive places like Iran? and languishing here in North America? For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. That is the difference. You can read on what Paul says about their life among them and how their life became a proof of the thing that they were teaching. He was left for dead at the, uh, outside of Philippi. And yet rose up and went back to preach to those same people. That's the power of God. That's something that the world does not understand. That's something that the world will take up, will, will take notice of and sit up and ask more. But where it's only in word, the world will pass it by. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. But as I've been reflecting a little bit about this pandemic and the shutdowns and lockdowns and everything else that's come along with it, I wonder if this hasn't been for our benefit, the church, when our ability to gather together is maybe restricted, when our time is now more our own 
go too many places right now. When we look at what we believe, what sort of gospel do we hold? Is it a gospel of words? Is it a social gospel? Is it a gospel that's about the social interactions we have throughout our church circles? Or is it the word that has come with power? With a power that's able to lead us to a stronger, closer walk with the Lord? Is it a chance for us to look at what we believe and how we need to share it in spite of restrictions? We have grown very comfortable, I think, in this country. We're not used to restrictions. We're not used to uh, deprivation. But we don't have to look too far back into the past to see whether that was not the case. The way the prison terms were structured for our believers back in Yugoslavia is there was nine years given for, they called it insubordination, for those who would not obey orders to take a weapon or swear an oath. But there was an extra charge. You got an extra year just for being a Nazarene. How many of us would view that as a privilege? To take that, that badge and to do a year hard labor in prison for it. Some did. We remember Chikijarko, who used to sit in our pews. Brother Gaber too. Have we become so soft that a little bit of inconvenience now becomes a, a great burden? What do we do with the extra time that we've been given? Do others know us as people with a hope that are maybe a little odd because they don't seem to fit in with the world around them? All of that can be said for believers throughout the ages. They always marched to a different, a different tune, a different beat of the drum because they were only pilgrims and strangers here. Hopefully, this time allows you also to reflect on what you believe and whether or not there is any power behind what you believe. There should be, because if it comes in word only, it's not enough. There have been those, and we even have a brother in our Richmond Hill Church, that didn't have the opportunity to hear preaching 
before he came to faith. God gave him a dream when he was still in Iran, actually, that caused him to seek out the truth, to look for this Jesus. But having found that gospel, there came also power. The gospel must always be accompanied with the power of God. And that'd be something we can all think about in the days, weeks to come. This concludes our service.